Welcome to this, the eighth uh, Space for Thought Literary Festival held at the school. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, there are events taking place throughout this week under the auspices of this festival, the theme for which was, no, in fact is emblazoned on the top right-hand corner. Uh, yes. Uh, utopias, uh, which, um, which I think is, as, 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 as I'm sure you would agree, a, a fabulous theme, a, a theme of perennial interest. I mean, yes, if nothing else, we use it all the time, albeit in somewhat of a negative sense, but, but, but can we really understand uh, uh, social life or the history of human collectives over the long durée from you know, the, the first of the agrarian civilization, going back to, to Mesopotamia and, and the Indus Valley, all the way down to the present, without some notion of utopia. I mean, there's something about utopia and its, and its various cognates that is intrinsic to the very, very nature of man. I mean, these are big, big issues, elements of which I believe uh, Dr. Frankopan and Professor Brotton are going to lead a discussion on uh, so there is a lot to look forward to. My role uh, in the next hour and a half is to uh, chair proceedings. Now, I'm a, a faculty member here at the school uh, in the uh, Department of International History. My fields of specialization lie in the early modern world uh, with a particular focus on South Asia and the Middle East in the period before modern colonization. It's the world... Uh, that was um, inhabited by the Ottoman Empire and the Mughal Empire. Now, this is a period from, say, roughly the 15th century through to the early 19th century, which is particularly relevant, I think, to the, the, the topic of this event and to the remarks that will be, be made in short order. Uh, this period was one in which the East and the West, uh, Asia and Europe... Islamdom or Christendom were deeply enmeshed with one another. And yet, this was a period in which no one part of the world had established any obvious dominance over the other part of the world, at least as far as Afro-Eurasia is concerned. Of course, things were going to change when you move into the 19th century and later, albeit uh, temporarily, as we can see now in retrospect. But that's what underpins my deep, deep interest in the discussion that is to follow. I have a very personal state, stake in what in the remarks that you will make. So, I hope you have been warned. <laughs> uh, we are in for a treat. Uh, and uh, allow me to say a few words about our two speakers, to whom a very, very warm welcome. Thank you. Uh, Professor Jerry Broughton is Professor of Renaissance Studies at Queen Mary University. He is uh, an acknowledged expert in the history of maps and particularly in the Renaissance era. He's written a number of books. Uh, one of his earlier books uh, told, gave an account of Charles I's art collection. But he's probably most well known for a more recent work, A History of the World in Twelve Maps, which has been translated into, is it 11 or 12 languages? 13 now, just how I'm looking. It's difficult to keep pace with this. Uh, 
And, uh, and so you get a sense of how well it's, it's doing. He's also somebody who is, uh, who, uh, who is on our airwaves. He is uh, on television and in, on radio. Uh, recently, or not too long ago, he um, uh, presented a production, a BB4 production, titled Maps, Power, Plunder, and Possession. And uh, not so long ago, he also fronted a uh, production uh, that came out in BBC Radio 3 called Courting the East. No less accomplished is Dr. Peter Frankopan, who is a senior research fellow at Worcester College, Oxford, and he is also the director of the Center for Byzantine Research at the university there. Uh, his uh, field of expertise uh, is vested in the history of the Mediterranean, though his interests extend much, much farther east to all the way to the western reaches of China. He's also uh, uh, a, a, an expert on the relationship between Christianity and Islam, uh, which is exemplifi exemplified by his expertise in medieval Greek literature. He, too, is found on the pages of a number of our international newspapers, and he's contributed to many TV and radio documentaries. His first book, which came out a few years ago, uh, was on the First Crusades. Now, as I already said at the very beginning, the theme of this festival is utopias, uh, and that can be taken a number of different ways. Uh, one way is that uh, utopias invite us to elucidate how different peoples looked at the world in different ways and what happened when these different worldviews came into conversation with one another. Uh, and these are some of the threads that will be woven by the two speakers in the next hour or so. Uh, Professor Broughton's uh, remarks uh, uh, stem from his most recent book. Uh, it is forthcoming. We believe it is going to be published in, at the end of March by Penguin, and it is titled This Orient Isle, Elizabethan England and the Islamic World. Whereas Dr. Frankopan's remarks are going to stem from his most recent book that has been published, uh, it is called The Silk Roads. Before handing over to our speakers some housekeeping notices, this is 2016. It is the age of Twitter. Uh, please feel free to Twitter if that is your wish. Uh, the hashtag is, uh, it's written here somewhere, LSC Lit Fest. This is also the age of the mobile phone. Please put it on silent mode. Uh, so, uh, the two speakers will, will uh, say, we'll have the floor for about 20 minutes each before we open up the discussion to the floor to you. Uh, and any questions you have, please do feel free to pose them. Without further ado, Dr. No, Professor Broughton. Shocking. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God, there's a lot to live up to, it sounds like. <laughs> Thank you very much. Great. Um, We, I think, are both going to be taking issue <laughs> with the title Looking Eastwards Cultural Exchange with the Islamic World. I mean, I should start by saying that um, Peter and I have known each other for uh, a couple of years, and 
the project that I've been working on, I think, is really just a small part of what he's going to be talking about um, after me. So I'm taking one little corner of it. Having said that, I suppose um, I just want to talk about where I've got to with doing this book, which in a way I'd say is quite provincial. It's quite a provincial book about Elizabethan England and the Islamic world, and that's predominantly what I'm going to be talking about. But I want to preface it by talking about why I've got there, and as I say, I think Peter will have a lot to say about this as well. I'd started doing this work, which I guess we'd call cultural exchange between East and West, but as I say, I think we're both going to be very, very unhappy about that kind of term. I started doing this about 15 years ago. I did a book uh, back in 2000 uh, with Lisa Jardine, uh, sadly my departed uh, colleague Lisa Jardine, who died recently. It was my great mentor, and we worked on a book called Global Interest, Renaissance Art Between East and West, back in 2000. And it was wonderful because... Today it was very significant, I think, because everybody threw bricks at this book and said, you know, it's wrong, this is absolutely ridiculous, this notion of the importance of the Ottoman Empire within the Renaissance. It's all wrong, 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 wrong. And you can go away and look at the terrible, terrible reviews we've got. It's very funny. Um, and it's quite interesting because most of the work that now talks about this kind of cultural exchange, usually footnote one is a reference to global interests. So in a way, it's a sort of pyrrhic victory for us. But I think it's a sign of the way in which this research has been going in the last couple of decades. Um, the book at the time was to talk about the way in which the Renaissance, or I guess what we'd really call it as historians the early modern period, that period sort of circa 1450 to 1650, was a period where we were trying to challenge the whole notion that the Renaissance was an exclusively white, Christian, European phenomenon. The whole notion of civilization with a big C was somehow defined in that period. We see it as that great moment, you know, that Adam breaks the Enlightenment and we move into modernity. And somehow the Renaissance is this moment that we all look back to when you say that was a very <coughs> exclusively Christian tradition. The book sort of critiqued that and said really that was a 19th century ideological formation. It was critics like Jacob Burkhardt, famously wrote this book in the 1850s, called The Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy. So the whole notion was that Italy, particularly Florence, was the cradle of that moment of the, the rebirth of classical values. It created something that we call the Renaissance. And that had no connections to any cultures that we might say to the east of the Italian peninsula at that time. What we were trying to say was that there wasn't exactly a sort of open, uh, amicable exchange between particularly the Ottoman Empire and the Italian peninsula, but that it was a kind of competitive exchange. So we were trying to show, particularly through art and artefacts, the way in which there was an exchange, there was a contact and context between, let's not call it the two cultures, because of course they were fragmented across so many different forms of Christianity and so many different forms of Islam that there was a form of exchange that was going on. I then went on and, and wrote another book, which is called, it's quite funny, considering where Peter ended up, called The Renaissance Bazaar, From the Silk Road to Michelangelo, which was in 2002, which sort of really elaborated on that story. Because it was written, and I remember finishing the book uh, just around 9-11, the book came out early 2002. And so again, it struck me the way in which the arguments about civility and civilization and the war on terror that were taking place. Just as I travelled to Italy, I remember being in Mantua. All the Americans had left, had all fled because of the attacks. And again, it was a really interesting moment to be there at sort of apparently the, the kind of cradle of, of, of the Italian Renaissance, to see that language of the war on terror and the sort of historical presumptions that it made, which it seemed to me were quite wrong. 
And so I'd done that work, and then I broke off it. There was always an argument that I wanted to make, which is what I'm going to talk about uh, just briefly tonight, which was about the place of England in that story. So the way in which, particularly Elizabethan England, was not really part of that High Renaissance story. And Gagan says this, you know, that I wrote a book on Charles I's art collection, which was about the way in which England only really gets that notion of the High Renaissance that we think about in terms of Leonardo and Michelangelo and so on, really only gets that post-1603, when James I comes to the throne. And the point I always keep making about Elizabethan England is its provincial backwardness at this time. I always say that Elizabethan England was a bit like Romania in the Soviet bloc era. It was completely cut off from the High Renaissance, precisely because of what happened around the Reformation. It was cut off from that whole Catholic European mainstream of the art and culture that was flowing out of Central and Southern Europe. So I'd always been interested, but I found it problematic to talk about the place of Elizabethan England, because you can't just run it into that narrative of a kind of cultural exchange that happens between, particularly, as I say, the Italian peninsula and the Ottoman Islamic world. So this is, in the end, why I've come back to doing it, because it seems to me relevant and useful to talk about it, and also because of the provocation of doing this work. For a long time, I said that the book was going to be called Shakespeare and Islam, and everybody got very upset about this, and the publishers got very upset about it. And in the end, uh, it will be, to some extent, about Shakespeare. And it will therefore be about representation. So we're not just telling a sort of historical narrative, and this is, I think, relevant to the kind of work that Peter's doing, that Peter's telling a historical narrative about the place of the Silk Road. And I'm interested in that, but also my day job is teaching Shakespeare, weirdly. Although I'm a professor of international studies, I'm actually in the English department. So I'm interested in the way in which representation works, so representation of what we might call Islam and Muslim characters in Shakespeare and his contemporaries. So that's really what I'm going to talk about uh, in the next few minutes. The problem with Elizabethan England is quite simply, as I've sort of been suggesting, is it's too far away. It's too far away from that notion of contact with the Islamic world when you're thinking about what's happening in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, and Southern Europe. The Mediterranean. We're a long way from the Mediterranean. Of course, there's also the problem that uh, Elizabethan England is predominantly and effectively, let's call it, a Protestant state. And what happens with Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's accession in 1558 is that you get a different moment of an encounter and an understanding of uh, what goes on with the Islamic world. So, uh, where's my thing? I want to show you, to start, as it were, with a bit of text. So I want to start um, with Aleppo. Um, it's interesting, because I was just doing a, a, a program with uh, Philip Mansell. Philip Mansell's written a wonderful new book about Aleppo, um, and the conceit is, you know, the destruction of, of one of the great cosmopolitan cities of the world. So in Othello, which we date around 1601, the ending of Othello, this extraordinary moment, a play that we've always said we think is about race, has this character who's a Moor, and I'm going to come back to what that means probably at the end. Othello, this Moor, comes in at the end, and his death speech says, he says to everybody, write this down, write down what's happened to me. And he says, tell the story of what I did, the service I did for the Venetian state. He's the loyal Moor, he's a Christian convert who's working for the Venetian state. And the last thing he says is, say besides, tell the story that in Aleppo once, where a malignant and a turbaned Turk beat a Venetian and introduced the state, I, Othello, the loyal Venetian servant, I took by the throat the circumcised dog, 
And all these markers of religion and ethnicity are very interesting, it seems to me, in the play. I took by the throat the circumcised dog, and I smote him thus. I stabbed him thus. I killed him. Now, what on earth are we doing in Aleppo, is really my question. What is the Elizabethan England audience thinking about when they're hearing about Aleppo? And one of the stories I always tell is that I've been teaching the play for, God, nearly 30 years. And, of course, prior to the recent conflict in Syria, I used to, in a lecture on Othello, use these lines and say to 200 undergraduate students of very diverse backgrounds, where is Aleppo? And for most of those 30 years, they all went, don't know. Now, of course, we all know where Aleppo is. So that seems to me a sort of striking issue about where we are in late 16th, early 17th century Elizabethan England. And the power of this model, which, as I say, I think starts to make a play like Othello, when we start to understand these cross-cultural transnational histories, look very, very different to us. And as I say, certainly not the play that we usually assume as being about race, but I think more about questions of ethnicity and religion, which I'll probably come back to at the end if I've got enough time. So, I'm just starting with that, and what I now now want to do is just talk a little bit about the history, about what happens um, in the Elizabethan period. The real turning point, um, and we have to go very fast, and we can talk about this more in the the Q&A. The big moment that happens, I think, which is very important for the Elizabethan context in terms of its connection to the Islamic world, is Elizabeth's excommunication in 1570. So this is the papal bull. She's excommunicated by Pope Pius V in 1570 because she is a heretic. They finally say, you know, we've had enough. She's been in power since 1558. She's been treading a sort of careful, you know, third way between reformed religion and Catholicism. Finally, papacy said, no, it's, this is not happening. She's excommunicated as a heretic. And that language of the heretic, it seems to me, in heresy is very, very important. Because what that does, it allows Elizabeth to be freed from the papal injunction, which say that you cannot trade with the Islamic world. You can't trade with Muslims. And that's been in place since the, I mean, the accounts, and Peter will probably know about this, I mean, these these, uh, Lateran Council edicts have been in place since at least the 12th century. Of course, they've often been sort of a blind eye's been turned to them. We only need to look at places like Venice to know that trade happened. But officially, Elizabeth is outside that edict. What she then starts to do is say, strategically, this is a really, really useful moment to begin trading and developing a political rapprochement, particularly with the Ottomans. And it's on the basis of a very, very interesting issue that happens around the Reformation, which is that the response, particularly of Catholicism, to Reformed Protestant, Calvinist, Lutheran beliefs is to say, it's just another heresy like what we misunderstand Islam to be. So the period Christian-European responses consistently throughout this period to Islam is that it can't, and they cannot and they will not acknowledge it as a theology in its own right. They either see it as a pagan form of religion or they see it as some weird heretical version of Christianity. So of course with Luther and Calvin a similar language is used to explain what's happening with what we would now call Protestantism. It's a heresy, it's really another version of Islam. What's very, very significant is that Elizabeth and her advisors therefore run with that. They almost embrace it. They say, okay, let's go with that conflation. And from the 1570s, they start to trade quite openly with the Ottoman Empire. They're also trading um, with Morocco, with the Barbary states in northwest Africa. And again, 
This is not to say there's some irenic encounter with Islam. It is strategic. It's very contingent on, of course, the greater threat to both those systems, both Reform Protestantism and Islam, which is Catholicism. It's Spanish imperial aggression. So both sides can see that there's a point of almost conflating their own identities in response to the greater threat, which is, of course, Spain. Wonderful material, which has all been published. This stuff's all, all, always been out there. Susan Skilleter, a wonderful uh, Anglo-Ottoman scholar who's working in Cambridge in the 1970s, published all this material. Nobody really took any attention, paid any attention to it a book called William Harborne and the Trade with Turkey, which came out in 1977. And everybody kind of ignored it. Lisa Jardine and I just said, look, you know, this work is extremely important. Skilleter told us the stories that the English merchants start trading, contraband trade with the Ottomans, which involved particularly um, shipping scrap metal to Constantinople, which was then turned into munitions to fight both uh, the Persians, because of course the Ottomans were all the Persians, but also with the Spanish. So this extraordinary moment where you have uh, effectively English munitions involved in wars against the Spanish. Um, rather wonderfully as well, again, Elizabeth had a sense of irony, most of the metal came was lead, which was stripped from roofs and bells from uh, deconsecrated churches after the Reformation. So this kind of fascinating moment, again, a very symbolic um, issue. Um, the Spanish are outraged. Everybody's sitting there in Constantinople saying this is absolutely shocking. This is a terrible situation. This is just a snapshot of the Spanish ambassador complaining about it, saying, you know, the English opened up the trade, uh, which they still continue to the Levant, to the Eastern Mediterranean. It's extremely profitable to them as they take great quantities of tin and lead thither in which the Turk buys of them almost for its weight in gold, the tin being vitally necessary for the casting of guns and the lead for purposes of war. So there you have it. It is of double importance to the Turk now in consequence of the excommunication proposed ipse facto by the Pope upon any person who provides or sells to infidels such materials as these. So there's an open acknowledgement of what's going on, that it's a strategic move, but that the Spanish are rather powerless to deal with it. Um, Elizabeth is uh, proposing anti-Spanish political religious alliances with this man, who's Murad III, the Sultan of the time. Um, she's also writing letters to him and again the language is of course very interesting because it's again the language of conflation of religious identity it's saying you like me share a certain belief in the power of the book we reject forms of intercession and what we would call idolatry and therefore surely we should do business I should say that these letters are written in subjection from Elizabeth in acknowledgement of Murad's superior political, imperial and commercial power because it's about trying to establish a particular commercial alliance and she says, you know, Elizabeth, this is the start of the letter it goes on um, by the grace of the most mighty God the only creator of heaven and earth of England, France and Ireland a bit naughty, not quite true um, the most invincible and most mighty defender of the Christian faith against all kind of idolatries That's putting that out there as a point, you know, we share that commonality of all that live among the Christians. So again, the anxiety, the problem of idolatry from Catholics, those that live among the Christians who believe in idolatry, and falsely profess the name of Christ. I'm writing unto the most imperial, most invincible prince, uh, 
Zoldan, Muran, Chan. There's only so much intelligence that they know about what the Ottomans are up to at this point. Of course, they don't really get it right. The most mighty ruler of the Kingdom of Turkey, and on and on and on. She sends William Harborne, who's the ambassador that Susan Skilleter has detailed the accounts of uh, in great detail. Harborne goes to, uh, to Constantinople in 1578. He stays there for about eight years. He works closely with the Ottoman court, and they refer to him as the Lutheran ambassador. So similarly, there's an understanding, I think, from the Ottoman court how this is playing out. The Ottomans are writing letters to uh, the Calvinists in northern Europe saying, we encourage your rebellion against Catholicism because, again, we see that there's commonality between what we're trying to do. The, the relations with the English become so uh, well established, but by the 1590s, um, Elizabeth's writing to Murad's mother, She's writing to the, to, the, to, the, to the Queen Mum, effectively, Sultana Sophia, and she's exchanging gifts with her, which include a rather wonderful mechanical organ, which she, she sends a guy called Thomas Dallam, who's rather wonderfully a sort of... He's a Lancastrian artisan who goes to Constantinople and he sets up this extraordinary organ and he plays it in front of Murad, which is absolutely marvellous. The Spanish are absolutely spitting tacks. Um, throughout that period, you've also got the exchange with... Uh, with the Kingdom of Barbary, with what we call modern-day Morocco, with the ruler Mullah uh, Ahmad al-Mansur. 1585, the Barbary Company is established, again with Elizabeth's uh, agreement, which is to set up trade exclusively with Morocco. I should say that the whole point about the Ottoman uh, connections are that, again, that gives rise to another uh, commercial company, which is the Turkey Company, which is established in 1581, and then, of course, leads in the early 1590s to the Levant Company. So you've got these two commercial companies with Elizabeth's sanction who are working both in North Africa and they're also working uh, with the Ottomans. Um, again, the exchange is, is wonderful because it's, it's another sort of arms to Iraq story. So the English are trading arms in exchange for saltpeter. They work out that the, 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 there's a lot of naturally occurring saltpeter in Morocco. And, of course, they want that for gunpowder um, and also, of course, sugar which is why Elizabeth had such terrible teeth, because it's Moroccan sugar um, which caused all that. Um, and you know, we can talk more about this, because I'm very conscious that, that we want to move on, but it's just that you know, the, the scale of the, sort of, uh, the visual impact and the representational power of this exchange is very pervasive. So here is, bizarrely, if anybody goes to Hardwick Hall in Derbyshire, um, best of Hardwick, has these extraordinary embroideries if you go into the hallway. And this is uh, faith. This is an embroidery of faith, which seems to be a representation of Elizabeth um, with a sort of unnamed uh, sultan. It's, or it's actually probably, it's probably Muhammad who sits at her feet. So it's a representation, a complete fantasy okay, of what's actually going on. So this is my point about representation. The representation that you get is an attempt to secure some form of superiority, which is completely at variance with what the history is telling us. But here is a representation saying, Elizabeth personifies faith. Um, Muhammad, of course, personifies uh, <laughs> no faith. Um, and you actually have uh, the book that he's actually clasping actually has, it says Al-Quran, it's the Quran. Um, and this we date from the 1580s. And you can go and see it in Derbyshire, in the sort of corner of this sort of dark, dank hall. It's very bizarre. Um, what I'm interested in, I think this will be part of the conversation that we have with Peter about questions about representation, because the impact on literary representation is profound in the period. 
So when you've got these kind of exchanges going on throughout the 1570s, 1580s, um, the drama responds to it. So all the great outpouring of you know, Elizabethan drama, Marlowe, Shakespeare, duh, they're all representing what we would now, it would be anachronistic to call Muslim figures at the time because, of course, they're using a whole panoply of different terms. They're talking about Mohammedans, they're talking about Saracens, they're talking about Turks and Moors, but effectively it's a misrecognition or a hazy understanding of what we would call Muslim characters. And I've done this count, so you can go and do it again, between 1579 and 1624, I can identify at least 62 plays that have Islamic characters, themes, or settings. And in the 1590s, it just goes mad. Everybody is producing plays about Turks, Persians, Saracens, Moors. It's just a a complete craze. It's beyond even a fashion. Um, It started, of course, by uh, Marlowe's Tamburlaine, which kind of really starts everything when we talk about Elizabethan drama. Marlowe's Tamburlaine, we date 1587-88. Of course, he has this kind of very, very peculiar representation of Tamburlaine. Again, Peter will have a line on this about the kind of complete fantasies that Marlowe's dealing with. But of course, he's very difficult to pin down as a figure. Is he pro-Christian? Is he pro-Islam? What kind of figure is he? And infamously, of course, in part two, he burns the Quran on the stage. And this was a moment which was censored when the play was performed just after the 7-7 bombings in London because of fears about the sensitivity of it. But there you have the play burning the Quran. But all the plays that you could name, that you, some of which you've probably heard of, The Jew of Malta, again, you know, set in Malta, it's about the Turks, Kids' Spanish Tragedy, 1587, Peel's Battle of Alcazar, George Peel writes about the Battle of Alcazar, this extraordinary battle that takes place in Morocco in 1578. Everybody's talking about it, completely changes the geopolitics of the period. We now know nothing about it. Who knows about the Battle of Alcazar? Who here knows anything about it? Very few people. So... You've got all the dramatists of the period are responding to what they start to understand as the effectively the Anglo-Islamic alliance across various uh, different forms from Morocco to the Ottoman Empire. And I should say Persia. Persia's in, but it's, it's another story uh, which I talk about in the book, which I can talk about afterwards if you want. As I say, the phenomenon reaches its zenith in the 1590s. There are at least 20 plays, it seems to me, where Turks or Moors here. Um, and this is the time, of course, where Shakespeare uh, is using the figure of the Turk quite a lot. One of the arguments is that he never puts a Turk, he never puts a, a Muslim on stage, but of course he famously does uh, put a Moor on stage, Othello. So I'm interested in how Othello is a kind of culmination, both of this period's engagement with the Islamic world, because it comes just, depends how we date it, I want to date it 1601, I'll tell you why in a minute. People date it between 1600 and 1604 which is when we have the first uh, account of it being performed. 1604, therefore, is the terminal date at which it could have been uh, written. I date it around 1601 because of this guy I'm going to talk to you about um, in a minute. Um, So it seems to me that Othello is uh, a representation, uh, a misunderstanding, a misrecognition of what what we think the encounters with the Islamic world are about. But within that, it's a a very, very compelling uh, misrepresentation, which I think it's possible to unpack to understand some of what's going on around this notion of exchange. And of course, it's at the very end of Elizabeth's uh, period. Uh, she dies in 1603. And it's really the culmination of this moment of exchange because the story that I tell, the tiny little story I, st- I tell, is of course that once James I comes to the throne in 1603, 
he immediately, the first thing he does, he says, this is killing us, we can't sustain uh, war with Spain. He immediately makes a peace treaty, he settles peace with Spain, um, all bets are off. There is no longer any compelling need for a commercial and political and military alliance with the Islamic world. So it just kind of completely flatlines. And James says, no, I'm not doing any of that. So 1603-1604, when the peace treaty uh, is signed in London, ends a certain moment, it seems to me, which is about this bizarre uh, Elizabethan moment of isolation, uh, religious, political rapprochement with that Islamic world. And it comes to a head in the summer of 1600 with this man, who's the Moroccan ambassador, uh, Al-Anouri. And Al-Anouri comes to London in the late summer of 1600 with an entourage um, from Al-Mansur to propose a military alliance between the two countries that would attack Ottoman positions in North Africa but would also attack the Spanish because, of course, Al-Mansur and the Moroccans had a huge problem with the Ottomans as well. So it's this bizarre moment which doesn't come off but within which we have in the mix Shakespeare writing a play like Othello, which is very quickly, and what I talk about in the book is that people say, oh, there's no other Muslim characters in Shakespeare. And I said, mm, what about Tysandronicus, Aaron the Moor, you know, who's the murderous evil figure? Um, he's in the early 1590s with Tysandronicus. Shakespeare gives you the unrecalcitrant, you know, evil, malcontent, Moorish villain. But then, of course, five years later, he does Merchant of Venice, which is a fascinating play, and even more so now because of that connection with Morocco. Because one of Portia's suitors, weirdly, from no, out of apparently nowhere, is the Prince of Morocco, who's actually a really nice guy, you know, and he's a complete flip to, tight, uh, to, to the Moor, Aaron the Moor in Titus Andronicus. So you've got completely polar opposites of these dramatic characters with the two plays. And then five years later, he produces Othello, which it seems to me is another conflation of the two figures. He's, of course, both at the same time. He's both a bit of Aaron, and he's a bit of the Prince of Morocco. And I'm fascinated by what we know about this guy, Al-Anouri. Remarkably, the, you know, the material that we have on he's there having his portrait painted in late 1600, early 1601. You can see that he's the, yeah, he's the legate from um, um, Morocco in England. He's age 42. It's 1600. Um, so it seems to me that it's a fascinating moment that he's also Morisco. What's really interesting is he shouldn't be having his portrait painted, right? He's a Morisco. He's actually, uh, he's a forced convert from Islam to Christianity, and we assume because he's been working in the Moroccan court, he's a revert, and that's one of the reasons, clearly, he comes to England. And I was just going to end, really, by pointing out that we know nothing, we know nothing about Othello. Othello, in the early bits of the play, he says, who is he? And I always do this in teaching, I say, he describes who he is, and he says, I'll tell you my story, I was taken by the insolent foe and sold to slavery of my redemption then some importance in my travels history. This tells us nothing about who Othello is. What do we think he is? He's a Moor? Well, he's from North Africa. Is he a Berber? Is he born as a Muslim? Is he then forcibly converted? Is he born as a Christian and then converted to Islam? And Shakespeare deliberately keeps that notion of who he is ambivalent. He keeps it open because he's responding to the last 30 years of Anglo-Elizabethan relationships, which have similarly been utterly ambivalent in the true clinical sense of that, of both the excitement and the, the, the passion and the engagement and the fear and loathing that comes with that model. So there is no simple notion of the cultural exchange 
But what it's telling us is that it's very, very deep-rooted within the Elizabethan period. And that's where I'll finish, because we're running out of time, and you need a piece now. Thank you. Peter Frankopan will speak for 20 minutes and then we will open the, the discussion up to the floor. Uh, great. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. For, thank you for giving up your time on a Thursday night, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Thursday night. Um, and thank you, Jerry. That was a terrific, um, a very impressive, as usual, um, opening up of a, of a window and explaining how that moment of a particular dawn in Britain's and England's relationship with, um, with the Ottoman world and beyond. Um, I'm, I'm interested in lots of different things. And um, when Jerry told me that, or just told us all that 62 plays reference um, Muslim characters, um, I can tell you that the number of British or English characters referenced in Islamic texts at that time is, practic- is, is uh, absolutely zero. So that impact that we have looking at what the, that important impact of um, exposure to uh, Constantinople and beyond, the impact of relationships, of triangulations against Spain, Britain's own problems, those influences that Jerry talked about, uh, they're all, it's all one-way traffic. And I think that as a, as a historian who looks at a slightly different part of the world, uh, one, of the, one of the difficulties, I think, uh, not a frustration, you know, one of the difficulties is that we over-prioritise uh, the role that Europe has, even when we're looking at the moment where that dawn that Jerry's talking to, and he mentioned the, the trading companies, this is the moment when England starts on its track towards empire, towards those trading companies, towards establishing how to sail big ships over long distance uh, and to then set the tone for the next um, two or three hundred years. I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that um, I am essentially, as a historian, broadly speaking, totally uninterested in Europe. Um, and there are, two, there, are, there, are, there are some very good reasons for that. Uh, first of all, as a boy, when I was uh, growing up, uh, I was taught about the Romans in Britain, and then the next thing I was taught about was the Battle of Hastings. Uh, and that thousand-year period in between the two is passed over in total silence because Europe is entirely irrelevant in the global story. There, is no, there are no plays, there's no art, there's nothing like the kind of cultural flowering that happens um, in the Elizabethan age and onwards. And I suppose from that point of view... Um, Europe really is truly uh, uh, in the swamps until about 1500. I see nothing really to engage with unless you really like um, the feudal system, as it used to be called, uh, if, you, if you're interested in uh, knights who can't really read and write, or in monasticism. But I think it's important to restart the concept of how we look at history from a perspective that casts loose some of the shackles that we're all bound into by our educations and by our received story of the, of the past. And I can show you how, frustrated, how frustrating uh, it is because when we talk about history, uh, this is the world we really look at, uh, which I include um, modern Turkey on there, Istanbul, Constantinople. Uh, but in fact, that's not even the world we really look at uh, or we teach about, with some obvious exceptions. Uh, that's the world. Uh, some of you, because you're highly educated and you've given up your Thursday evenings, will be able to tell me lots of things about our European neighbours who are not on that map. But I'm not going to embarrass you by asking you to show hands to tell me who the best Polish playwright is. Or who the finest Romanian, uh, Jerry knows about Soviet Romania, but not many other people do. Uh, who can tell me anything about uh, Greece from the Byzantine age through to 
independence or beyond, apart from Kazanzakis and Kavafi. These neighbours we have in our own continent are totally obscure because we've rendered them irrelevant in our own historical story. Uh, and I think there's no coincidence that this global map that we have is constantly being presented as being the point to which all roads lead. Uh, and this is not the world that I have any particular interest or expertise in because the story for me that is important and interesting is how did the West appear from the Dark Ages, from the swamps, to take over the world. And that process of empire, of where 100 years ago even Belgium had an empire, how did that process happen? What are the markers we look for? How can looking at cultural interchanges and exchanges uh, enlighten that process of trying to understand history properly? Uh, because that is, of course, what the world actually looks like. And those questions I can ask you about Romania, I can include and, and open up to almost any other part uh, of, the, of the continents to try to widen our horizons. And some of you will have interests and expertise in looking at these uh, other parts of the world, but by and large, our, our vision is uh, conspicuous by its, um, by its narrowness. And for me, as a boy growing up, learning about Greek mythology and Greek history, uh, Alexander the Great was my sort of great passion when I was seven or eight years old. And it would seem to me immediately obvious that Europe had no relevance or meaning, even in the ancient Greek world. Because ancient Greece, like ancient Rome, was focused entirely onto the east. Because of Gladiator, which is a terrific film, uh, because of Asterix, we, because of the European Union, we tend to think of the Roman Empire as having some sort of imprint and some kind of contribution to European culture. And we, we steal that by building buildings that we call neoclassical, that replicate Roman temples and Greek temples uh, and um, a monumental architecture. But uh, Greek, the Greek world was faced only towards Persia. Uh, the Roman world was faced and made, for, and Rome was transformed from a city and a republic into an empire, literally into an empire, through the conquest of Egypt and then the, per, then the, the provinces in the east. Rome's f total focus uh, of, in terms of prestige, in terms of its borrowings, in terms of its trade, was focused in, in Asia. And that is entirely self-evident because in the year 330, a new city was built, which came to be called Constantinople, but was named at the time New Rome, that re-anchored Rome in the east to be closer to what was important. It's no coincidence, too, that when Rome falls, those western provinces are totally expendable because ultimately France, Germany, even Italy, Spain, have nothing really to commend them from the year 200 AD or 300 AD, call, call it 400 in the Tilladahan, um, up until the time that uh, Jerry is talking about. And I'm much more interested to have a more balanced view of history to find out what was going on. Uh, and and as, a, as an academic, and as a father, um, I go nuts about the fact that we teach our children nothing about Song Dynasty China or the Tang, or about the rise of Islam, or the rise of the great Arab empires and the things that were achieved there. And that, that lack of balance and perspective uh, is something which is hugely motivating but very frustrating at the same time. And all of you understand, we all understand, that there is an anchor that we have in these parts of the world. Because when I fly to New York, before I get body searched, I tick a box that tells the New York customs officials that I'm a Caucasian. An obscure mountain range lying between the Black and the Caspian Seas. I define myself by saying that I speak Indo -European, an Indo-European language, or in fact, multiple Indo-European languages. I had to learn some Semitic languages, uh, Sino-Tibetan, the Altaic, the Turkic languages. These all collide in a part of the world that we don't even have a name for.
used to be called the Middle East. Now when we talk of the Middle East, we tend to think about Israel, Palestine and so on. But that heartland of the world is the place to stand to see where everything has happened because there were no dark ages uh, along the Silk Roads. There, were, there was no moment where for centuries you became irrelevant. There was no moment where cultural productivity fell to zero. And those regions that I work on were stimulated, prompted by the fact that when I was a boy, I was very fortunate to um, be able to learn Russian at school, and even more fortunate that my uh, Russian teacher uh, had a too great a dependency on um, vodka, as many Russian teachers do, <laughs> and was sent to Baghdad to dry him out and came back and taught some of us boys Arabic um, for a year, or a year and a half. And through, um, through real serendipity, uh, falling in love with the texts, the regions, the cultures of people who are passed over in total silence, um, I started to look at parts of the world where this starts to be important. Uh, Europe is a corollary. It is the back end of a series of train networks. These lines behind me represent the flow of global religions, which all seem to me to, to turn up in the same part of the world, in this sort of heartland of Mesopotamia, where, as Gagan said, where, where civilization began, where we as human beings learnt to build cities and to cooperate in a more sophisticated way, where the first laws were recorded. This is where the cauldron of the central um, uh, exchange of ideas, of goods, of commerce, of faith, all take place. And it's true that one has to be slightly sanguine about the fact that Islam, of course, rises in Mecca and Medina, but the great heartland of the, of the Muslim empire that rises immediately after the death of the Prophet Muhammad is centred absolutely here. And when we start to unpack what that world looks like and all the, current, the concepts of us thinking that somehow Christianity is something to do with Europe, it comes as a great shock, not to you, but to many of my students and to many, many people who should know better, uh, that there are more Christians in Asia until th at least 1300, probably 1400. The spread of Christianity along these connectors, along these silk roads, reaches through not only through Iran and places like Turkmenistan, but into China before there's the first Christian bishop in England. Now, that legacy of Christianity, which, like Judaism and Islam, are Semitic religions born out of Semitic languages, we have changed, we've taken over to make them Latinate, to involve Rome, to create a world where it fits how we choose to see the past. And when you see these, these kinds of um, arrows along which not just evangelists and people of faith spread, but also traders and goods, one starts to ask, well, what is it that those Elizabethans were really after and why do they need it from uh, Constantinople? What was it that made the Ottoman world, Persia, Mughal India in this period, such flourishing empires that eventually the West managed to come up and um, replicate and overtake? And one of the things I think that's important to see is here is the Islamic empire, broadly speaking, um, about 100 years after the death of Prophet Muhammad, a proper global superpower that stretches from Spain and right the whole way across Asia as far as the Himalayas. At points disrupted, disconnected, it's true, but essentially funneling cash into a centre, uh, all based here on the city eventually Baghdad, but cities like Nishapur, Merv, um, who else do I have on here, Mosul, etc., Damascus, which become the most important centres of learning uh, and the most important centres of arts, culture and scholarship. And as you know, sitting in the LSE in a spanking, brand spanking new building, uh, you need to have patrons to enable scholars to be attracted. And as all of you who are here this evening from different backgrounds, different countries, etc., etc., uh, you need to have a culture of tolerance that allows scholars to be attracted, regardless of their ethnicity or their beliefs. And this world that I work on from 700 onwards is one of profound tolerance, where there is no barrier 
to Christ, Christian scholars or Jewish doctors or Buddhist or Hindus who come to work on areas ranging from mathematics to optics, from pharmacopoeia to working out how to take the pulse of someone suffering from anxiety, uh, or, or even trying to work out the, the relationship between the conscience and the subconscious at a time when, in Europe, not even Charlemagne could sign his own name. And that story of how it is that this cultural flowering uh, managed to um, be, be swept up I think also explains why in this world that I show you on the map behind me uh, of a powerful, very wealthy, highly sophisticated and above all metropolitan world because cities are places where exchanges happen frequently and intensively and therefore that's where ideas spread quickest. Western Europe at this time had cities with an average population size of between five and 10,000, maybe 15,000 in the case of London in the, in the early Middle Ages at a time when Baghdad probably has a population of about one and a half million. And what happens uh, to talk about in terms of the relationship between the West and the Islamic world is that uh, the West, not for the first time, is keen to get access to goods and money because we as human beings like to stratify ourselves and we don't really produce anything in Europe. There's nothing really here. We have very limited natural resources. We can graze sheep and cows quite well and, and, and our fields are, are normally well watered. But there's no gold, there's none, there's none of the lapis, all the things that would appear in the art in Europe in the 14th century and 15th century onwards, that gold, which comes from gold mines in Central Asia, the lapis, the brilliant blue that colours the work of Fra Angelico and others, all from lapis mines in Afghanistan. Um, we don't have anything here to offer in return. And our first ex experience of exchange between Europe and the Islamic world comes from about the year 800 onwards, where for the next 250 years, we work out there is one commodity that we can sell in great volumes to a vibrant and rich um, world centred above all on Baghdad. And that is women and children. The Euro Europe starts to rise in the Dark Ages because the scale of human trafficking, of white, white human trafficking, white slave trade uh, in Europe, is immense. And some of the great cities in Europe today, like Dublin or Utrecht, Mainz, Prague, and above all, the most important slave trading centre of all, Venice, grow as a result of the exposure to uh, vast movements of people. And I can tell you they're vast movements of people because although I'm a historian, uh, I, I, therefore I know not to believe all the texts that I read, uh, we have a database record in the form of silver coinage. Because silver coins were used from the Islamic world to pay for this trade, uh, and the primary proponents of the um, European slave trade uh, were the Vikings. And the Vikings, you'll have learned about at school, turning up through the fog and sacking Lindisfarne. The smart Vikings, the ambitious Vikings, headed down the river systems of Russia, above all down the Volga, through to the Caspian Sea, to trade in a scale where the current estimates of the number of silver coins that found their way back up to Scandinavia and along these river systems is not numbered in the hundreds of thousands, it's not numbered in the millions, it's not numbered in the tens of millions, but in the hundreds of millions. And that scale of how we have... Um, fails to understand our own past, uh, there are some ironies in it. So that when those of you go into a, um, uh, to buy a, uh, a cappuccino in a bar in Italy and you say ciao, it doesn't cross anybody's mind what that means. But ciao is Venetian slang, schiavo, I'm your slave. A kind of joke that you might say to somebody when you greet them. Uh, and this part of the world here, that world that none of you really, well, you're exceptional, but most people can't tell you anything about the Poles or the Lithuanians uh, Russia before the Romanov dynasty or the Balkans, the word Slav comes from the fact that these were people who the, the Pope and the Christian world was prepared to deal with in slaves. 
as, as slaves and to trade. Because through fault of historical accidents, this region here established Christianity much later than Western Europe. So all of the decrees by the Pope forbidding Venice to trade, and as Jerry said, Venice was very good at saying one thing and doing another, doing another. That that story of our past is very complicated and much more interesting, I think, than uh, we, we, we recognise. And in terms of those exchanges, I'm much more interested in trying to find out what goes in both directions rather than just one way. And I suppose that opens the question that about, in my mind, what I've tried to work on in my book, uh, to look at why the West rose in the first place here, by the way, to show the connections of the, uh, the ways in which things travel. Um, these, these light grey lines are the routes the Mongols te- take. The dark black lines are the route taken by the Black Death. So these corridors, these are gene corridors, these are corridors that carry disease and violence, as well as ceramics and silks and spices and so on and so forth. That part of the world is the magnet that is not just looking westwards, where, by and large, there is no interest at all from the Ottoman and Persian worlds in Great Britain until the 18th or 19th century. The world that is important is here, looking towards India, where the discovery of the Americas funnels capital and cash into Western Europe, finally putting Western Europe in the centre of a global uh, exchange mechanism, and that cash is then funneled straight back out to buy products, particularly from India, where suddenly you start to find these cities in Rajasthan that start to be built as the networks of the Silk Roads funnel this way. The Mughals, of course, the Gagam will tell you about, are a Central Asian dynasty that spread into northern India and bring, bring architectural forms like the tomb of Humayun, even the Taj Mahal, that are classic Central Asian architectural forms. So the question is really, how did the West manage to win? And uh, because I don't have too long to do that, I'm going to give you four points that I think are vaguely relevant. Um, number one, what one thing the West was good at was military technology. We fought a lot. We built castles. We put men on horses, developed armour, learned how to fight each other, to the point that the Crusades are the seminal medieval period event. It's no coincidence that twinning violence and religious violence, um, uh, violence and religion into religious violence, is the most powerful cocktail that starts to trigger uh, interesting things finally in Western Europe. Uh, Second, uh, unlike in the Islamic world, Western Europe uh, and Europe had a principle of a very aggressive asset consolidation. In the Quran, uh, it's very clear that there are um, ways in which uh, assets need to be divided both between a widow and between multiple children, of whom generally families tend to be of larger sizes for obvious reasons. And that means that essentially, and by and large, it's not absolutely uniformly true across um, the Arabic-speaking world, you tend to not have a development of aristocratic families that are able to retain influence and power in the same way that happens in Western Europe. And that is the same story, by the way, as in ancient Rome and in the Byzantine world. You could have a dynasty that might stay powerful for 50, 60, maybe 70 years outside the imperial family, but by and large there is a constant turnover of a meritocracy. And, of course, the problem with the meritocracy is that no one is heavily invested to take risks. And in, in Europe, because we devolve eventually into primogeniture, where families can build up enormous amounts of power, that allows the types of investment to be able to be speculative that develop the kind of returns when Vasco da Gama and the Portuguese and Dutch and eventually the British too start to get involved in. Uh, The third, uh, as I said already, we are very good in Western Europe at at growing crops. Ultimately, that turns out to be a a massive competitive advantage because our cities are able to grow almost infinitely. And that is not the same profile uh, in the Middle East, in the world that Gagan works in. He'll tell you that between 1500 and 1800, 
the number of cities with a population of more than 10,000 didn't change in the Ottoman world. There was no acceleration of urbanisation because without heavy investment, cities can't sustain more than a certain size population. And as it turned out, cities like Amsterdam and London, which grew aggressively and, la- and grew large, enabled velocities of exchange and tax revenues to be able to fund the kinds of scholarships, the types of art, the kinds of audiences for drama that Jerry's been talking about. Uh, and fourth and final, uh, what we managed to do is we managed to take control of history. Uh, I told you already about the Roman and the classical art forms that we've somehow expropriated as ours. You go to the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford, where I live, and there are no end of British aristocrats wearing togas, dressed up as though they are, uh, as though they are Roman rulers. But that is not the world that looks uh, familiar to anybody who works on these areas of exchange, where the borrowing, the constant improvement, the constant retouching, rather than the trying to seize history and to create that story that I was taught, that you're taught, not the LSE and by brilliant scholars like Gagan, uh, but the story where we jump from Boudicca to 1066 and then again, more or less silence until the Elizabethan era, where Europe suddenly becomes important and there are good reasons and explanations for that after 15, 1600. My own view for what it's worth is that the world is now changing again and that period of European dominance is cascading backwards. And 100 years ago when a quarter of the globe was coloured pink, that, that constant recycling back Ultimately, Brexit and even discussions of Brexit are the logical culmination of a century worth of contraction. And this new world that where I work on, are, are where are natural resources, not just oil and gas, which are having a tough time in the markets right now, but rare earths, uh, the, kinds of, the kind of interactions are, are between these states, is going to shape the 21st century. And I think it's fair to say, shape the 20th century. The oil and the minerals in Iran and in Mesopotamia and Persia and uh, Iraq and Iran Uh, played a critical role in the post-Second World War period. If you read my book, even in the First and the Second World War, as well, as a matter of fact, but that struggle to control this half of the world has been part of the cardiac arrest that has um, messed up so much of this part of the world in the last three decades. And other people have a different way of dealing with this part of the world than we do in the West, where our heavy intervention, crusades without the divine, attempting to impose a set of views and beliefs without bothering to understand that the people we're trying to engage with are not uh, 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 people who have no cultural or history to be proud of, but to try to intervene and create a world that looks like ours, I think it's very easy to forget the fact that we've learnt our tolerances through the most brutal forms of violence that we can imagine. And in that, I would include the transatlantic slave trade and, of course, ultimately, the Holocaust, where the way in which we were able to treat our fellow human beings in Europe has no parallel in the history of Asia. There are flashpoints. I'm no, no, not an apologist for uh, Genghis Khan. Um, <laughs> but I do know how to read these Mongol texts carefully, and I do know how to understand the classic rules of the playground, bully, which is that you use one case, to, uh, one case of uh, extreme violence to create a wave that opens up in front of you. Empires grow quickly when that expansion allows for switches of pace. And in my book, I write a lot about, uh, about the Mongol world, how it starts to grow, and it's unrecognizable from the sort of the blanket world that we talk in. Gavin will answer much better than I will in the questions. Uh, but a world that is much more refined, much smarter as, as, uh, administratively, much smarter in terms of its processes of taxation, much smarter in its intelligence gathering of finding out what is going on in the world around it. But we in Europe, I think, are at a point in the 21st century, uh, Jerry said it already, uh, of trying to look at globalization and to try to understand the world in more connected ways. And uh, all I will tell you is that In 400 BC, there was one Chinese ruler who said, to understand the world, we need to discover it and we need to innovate. 
That's two and a half thousand years ago. And the globalization that we talk about today, Tony Blair flying left, right, and center as though he's the sort of evangelist of globalization, the trade routes that are part of the new world of China investing hundreds of billions of dollars, the current estimate is about a trillion dollars already invested into connections in this part of the world, um, are nothing new. The speed may be different, but uh, 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, we could talk about a globally connected world with the Americas on the side, it's true, but where information, exchange, goods, products and knowledge were being circulated in this central area. This is where we should end up teaching our children about at schools. This is where instead of teaching French and German and Spanish, we should teach our children Russian, Arabic, Farsi, the Indic languages and Chinese. The fact that we persist in teaching already what we know, going back again and again and again through that glossed past where Michael Goh thinks it's all real. Actually, when you stand and stand and look at the world in a slightly different perspective, I think you can see more interesting patterns and more interesting kinds of discussions. Thank you. So, are you provoked? Are you, are you stimulated? Uh, I certainly am. I, I, I have a, a fair few questions, but, but so do you. Uh, so I am going to hold off from posing these questions to our, to our two speakers to enable you to, to get, a, get a running start. So why don't uh, we open the floor to you, and uh, if we could begin with the gentleman on the left. Yeah, yeah. I'd just like to thank Dr. Franklin for... Um, yeah, I found that immensely stimulating. And while I agree with your thesis that, you know, I read history at the other place, and it was totally Eurocentric. I mean, I just wonder if it helps your very strong case when you say the Greeks uh, looked exclusively um, east, when in fact, of course, they didn't because of Magna Graecia, Sicily, okay. Italy, the Peloponnesian okay, Wars. I mean, yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. one point. And the second thing is to dismiss a thousand years of European history as the swamps which is basically it, which is a wonderful phrase, I think. But, I mean, it does kind of ignore Romanesque architecture, Gothic architecture, and actually there was quite considerable artistic achievement in that, in yeah, that okay. era. So, you know, you're, you're quite right to pick me up, and, you know, and luckily I'm not a politician, so I'm not accountable for anything that I say. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, I think I, it's true, you know, the, the Magna Graeca Greek colonies in Sicily and so on are, are, are you know, they're not unimportant, but relative to the Persian Wars and Xerxes and Darius, they are a footnote. So, so, so it's never been fought, but for the economic importance of Syracuse and Sicily. Yeah, okay, well, you know, there, there, there's, there, there, I'm not going to argue. There's, there's something in that, but the Greek story, whether it's looking at Herodotus and the kind of world that he's trying to describe and where he wants to describe, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that the weight is very, very significant. So I'll choose my words more carefully about that. As far as, as Western Europe goes, it's true. It's a little bit of a cartoon-like vision to say it's the swamps, nothing is built. But essentially, after the fall of, of Rome. Um, copper smelting and metal smelting in Europe declined to prehistoric levels. So people in the Neolithic area were, were using metal more than Europe in 5th and 6th and 7th and 8th and 9th centuries, which I think is significant. Uh, the collapse of building in stone is almost 100% until about 950 AD, for five, six, seven hundred years. Uh, the levels of literacy plummet to a level where the, the materials that are left, are, we have to treat them as jewels because there's nothing else. And some of those are exquisitely beautiful, I, I grant you that. But I think that in the grand scheme of what is going on at this time, where uh, you have scholars working in Baghdad, working out the circumference of the earth to within 20 feet, 
where you have algebraic systems which evaluate the, the philosophical and metaphysical and mathematical importance of the concept of zero, I think it is absolutely fair to say that the cultural flowering in other parts of the world makes what we look like uh, uh, tiny little dots of light in the darkness. Second row from the back. Um, thank you very much for the talk, I must say. Like, I'm delighted that I came here. Both speakers were remarkable. Like, my view was, like, I essentially saw your book in a bookshop, like the Silk Road. I traveled, like, uh, the summers for four months from uh, North Africa to Middle East, like, following roughly the footsteps of Ibn Battuta. And I was planning to continue my journey this summers, like, so I was looking for a few books around the area. And um, I must say, like, at that time when I saw your book, like, I saw your picture on the cover, I thought, this guy is suited, booted, English-looking chap. <laughs> what would he know about the... I've heard Don't Judge a Book... I've heard of Don't Judge a Book by his cover, but Don't Judge an Author by Wayne. <laughs> that, oh, that's harsh. I'm, I'm, I'm really go. delighted what that... What should I do? I'll grow, grow a beard. <laughs> <laughs> now I'll definitely buy that book, like, after attending this talk. So. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll sign it for you. Yeah. So, so, so there is a loving going on here. Uh, I'm sorry, one... one ask your question. Yeah. It was just a comment, like, partly what you said, like, uh, the Eurocentrism of the, um, of, the, of the history that we're taught here. When I was traveling, like, I stayed in hostels mostly, and not a single Western traveler that I met had even heard of Ibn Battuta. Each one of them knew who Marco Polo was, and considering they were virtually contemporaries, like, one died and the next, the other one started his journey, and Ibn Battuta traveled for twice as many years as Marco Polo did, and covered twice the, I mean, 29 years, but twice the distance he did. Nobody had even heard of it. it was really bizarre in this day and age, and you think, like, backpackers are a bit more aware, like, in terms of traveling than the average tourist would be, so... I agree. Yeah. So, so let's take a, a couple of questions so that we can add them to the mix. Uh, so if we could move to that size, uh, the, the gentleman in the, um, uh, in, the, in the shirt with the collar. Um, um, my question is about prospects and what can be done to broaden a view of, of history, the, the, the history as it's taught in this country. I mean, um, from my view, I'm not sure we need many more biographies of Henry VIII, but people how, love how, that stuff, though. But how, they buy it, and so, so they get written. But how, the, the question is, how, how do we how do we change how do we change that? And one more question. Uh, the lazy in, in, in the pink. Wait for the for the for the microphone. Um, you mentioned about the revival of the Silk Route, especially by China, and some of the Western observers have been quite surprised by the pace of it. Where do you see Europe in, in, in this context, um, in this new Silk Road revival? Uh, well, we're, broadly speaking, well, it's, it's, we're not, we're not, it's not irrelevant. I mean, the, the, that, that new Silk Road region, which stretches in the Chinese, it's the, it's the signature Chinese foreign policy of the 21st century that links investment across the whole of the spine of Asia, uh, even, even up into Turkey and above into, uh, into parts of Russia. Um, you know, Europe has a role to play because uh, China it needs a counterweight. You know, anybody in, in these regions is, is keen to find different routes and different partners to play with. Uh, unfortunately, in Europe, we are, we are more or less tin-eared. We're tone-deaf. We don't send our leaders to go and meet with these people. When we do, we, we hector them about how they should be more like us. And um, I think we, we, don't, we haven't invested the time and energy to discover who they are. So we started a competitive disadvantage. But there are opportunities for Europe in this world that is, is emerging. But it's no coincidence, I think, that some parts of the Middle East at the extreme end 
and Russia and China, even, in, even Modi's India, that language of a world that, where the West is, is becoming peripheral and should be kept out of how people trade and do business and how people frame their political debates is something that is, is, is very striking. And you know, I spend a lot of time in these parts of the world. And the sense that the West is very good at um, shooting first and asking questions later, that, that that damage has been done over over many decades. It's not just uh, post-Gulf War One or Gulf War Two. That involvement of, of saying one thing and doing another, in the same way that the Venetians learned how to do that, you know, we have a track record in the West of supporting unsavoury regimes while talking about democracy and selling lots of defence munitions, but at the same time asking for, for trade. So I think that there, there are opportunities for the West. I think that my, my primary worry right now is, is uh, that of inequality, because as any historian will tell you, inequality, when it widens to too great a level, and normally something goes pop. And uh, here, here in the West, we, there seems to be no limits to that process, where, again, other parts of the world seem to have a slightly different profile. Henry VIII. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, what do you do? Well, one thing you do is you, you write books. So you do what Peter's book does. I mean, I think what's interesting is because it's such a big synoptic account that you start to retell global histories accordingly. It's very hard to do this work. I mean, I'm very clear about this. He has a, a grasp of the languages which I don't, which is why I stepped away from doing this work. There was a point where I realised because I didn't have Arabic, I didn't have Turkish, I couldn't carry on doing that sort of fine-grained research. So this is a kind of polemical book. It's not what Peter's doing. Mine is to say, this is, as it were, the distorted reflection. It's to absolutely agree with what Peter was saying. You know, we completely valorise and we sort of, we look down the wrong end of the telescope and, and we see the Elizabethan world and we think, oh, and it's not. It's, it's, it is an absolute spec. The problem, of course, are questions about um, rewriting of history that you ended with. Now it is incredibly significant. You know, this is Shakespeare 400. It's the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. I mean, who cares? You know, I'm working in, in Venice at the fact that it's the 500th anniversary of the first European ghetto, right? And that's not getting the kind of attention that Shakespeare is. And that really, really annoys, I'm sure it would annoy you, and that's still a sort of European context. So I think one of the issues is, for me, doing what I've done, is it is about questions of Englishness. For Peter, it's not. It's a different sort of sense of global cosmopolitanism. For me, it's about saying, I grew up and I went to a state school in Bradford, Right, in the 80s, and I remember being given Trotsky to read by a Sikh nationalist who came in one morning jumping around saying, we have just killed Indira Gandhi. Right? That, and I remember thinking, this, this is weird. You know, we're all sitting there doing religious education, you know, and, and none of us were actually speaking properly to each other, and it, it disclosed a world that none of us were really understanding what either of us were doing. So I think, I think that we're doing the book, and I end telling this story at the end of the book, and I just say, you know what, there are different versions of Britishness and Englishness, and what I would like that book to do is just open up a little crack to say there are other contexts of British Muslims who might say, I'm not part of the story of Shakespeare's world, and to say, actually you are, because this story that you now have says... Actually, there are other contexts here. This is not the parochial, and we haven't talked about nationalism here, the whole national myth, particularly of this period, is a nonsense. There is no nation state in, in the Tudor period. It's a complete fudge. And, of course, those issues of nationalism come in, and Peter will talk again much more extensively than I can around this, but those, those boundaries and borders are much more porous, which is just what I've been showing, but to say this is only one representation, and I'm only showing one side of the history, I'm not in the Ottoman archives. 
saying what is Murad and his advisors saying about this. Somebody else needs to do that, and I think that's why doing this work is so difficult. He's annoying because he has so many of the languages, like which is just kind of frustrating because he can go off and do that work. A lot of it, I think, is that we have to start talking about doing collaborative work with other scholars from different traditions. Which is, a, you know, which is a flat structure of, of producing work, which says, yes, we can work on this stuff. Um, and he's just lucky, he's fortunate. Do you, know, do you see what I mean? It's, it, I think it's, it's hard work, you know. To and it's bloody like hard work. <laughs> I know. It's been I mean, when years. did you do it? How old well, are I was you? styling my hair in the mirror, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's take a couple more questions. Um, Jamil uh, over there, and, uh, and the gentleman in the jacket. Um, yeah, I was just going to ask you, you alluded to, to some of the factors. I mean, almost knife-edge factors that enabled uh, European dominance. And, I mean, there's nothing extraordinary in terms of the, the cultural espousal of Europe or the longevity, but, it, but it's the extent to which European hegemony coloured the map, etc. I, I was just wondering, you alluded there to the, the, the nation-state as a... and uh, it sits alongside another uh, ideological European um, conceptions that have been institutionalised across the world. Did you have any ideas, A within the history what the imperial ambitions of the Ottomans etc might have been had they remained in the ascendancy and, and would there have ever been the possibility of following European lines and to link it to the present whether a, a relocation of, of power and, and dominance uh, to the non-European world will begin to dissolve some of the structures that are larger European creations such as the nation state such as the liberal project such as intrinsic rights where you thought that you know that would become at odds with with these actors china etc dominating within a institutionally european framework you've got a bigger crystal ball no 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 i mean again i i can't really speak to that because i i can't talk about that aspect of of the ottoman imperial project it's it is not my context you know i'm saying i can only speak it's peter's thing we speak from where we stand i mean I did this with the map book. I mean, I was looking at Peter's, uh, you know, obviously, uh, contemporary geopolitical maps and thinking again, we know that the maps from these earlier periods don't even put north at the top, that Atlantic world map that he starts with. It's a complete myth. It only really is established in the 17th century. So I'll defer to you around the notion of where we stand in terms of the twilight of a nation state. That's not my well, you know, Francis Fukuyama settled that one 20 years ago saying we're all liberal, all liberal democracies. But, you know, we see a world where forget about what's happening in other parts of the world, in, in Kazakhstan, in Russia and so on, which, by the way, quite amusing that Putin uh, on, on TASS a couple of days ago said that um, if asked the Russian election committee would agree to come and monitor the EU referendum here <laughs> to, make sure, to make sure that it's done properly. Uh, which, you know, so, so at least someone's got a sense of humour you know, when it comes to, to politics, at the very least. You know, I think that we see, we see different political structures to the ones that we'd all predict. We assumed, uh, and that's not a lot of books, uh, end, of, end of history, we assumed that everyone would want to become like us. And it turns out that not only do they not want to become like us, with lunatics like Donald Trump and Nigel Farage and the Brexit gang, uh, you know, there is, there is, I think, a point where you know, there are those stresses and weaknesses of our political system where so many disenfranchised they don't vote in the first place. That question of what a state means is alive here today with us. And what our role is within Europe, what our role is between Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland and England... We, we, you know, we are we are in a moment of a profound transition, and uh, I don't. Uh, Jerry says I've got a crystal ball. You know, I, I don't, I'm not sh- not sure about that, but it seems to me that the world is, looks very different where I stand to the very comfortable 
people who write in, in the national press here about um, you know, how, the, how the world looks. Until very recently, the historians would argue that the 60s and 70s was the, the apogee, the high point of the nation state, though given events in the last few years, maybe there's a revision going in place there. Please, sir. Uh, Jerry, I have a question on The Tempest, which is um, often looked at as a play about the Atlantic, but it was also about the Eastern Mediterranean, mm. because if I remember it right, they're coming back from Carthage. Mm. So is that a reflection of the, that brief window that you're talking about where England was more aware of the East? You've got us onto Utopia as well. I mean, we see, we often see Tempest as a Utopian play. I think it's very interesting because I, I just mentioned this in the book. I've I've written about the Tempest for ages. It's a play which has always annoyed me, because again, it's it's what Peter's saying about where you stand. So from the late 19th century, we've been told that it's a play about England's emergent uh, engagement with the New World, you know, with the Virginia Colony, Jamestown. But of course, it's American new historicist critics who've told us that. Because if you're sitting in Berkeley on the West Coast and you want to have a connection to Shakespeare, you find a play which mentions the still-vexed Bermudes, the Bermudas. So we've had a tradition that even, again, in the 70s, 70s and 80s, where people started to reread the play and say it is about a contentious colonial politics, that relationship between Prospero and Caliban. We've therefore given it a new world setting. And it seems to me it's a bit like the ending of Othello, where Shakespeare says it goes both ways. So you're absolutely right that the setting, the point of departure, is that they're all coming back from North Africa where they've married off an Italian uh, noblewoman to an African king. And we assume, because we know this backstory, that he's a Muslim king. Clarabel is married off. And so, again, you have a glimpse into that world. But Shakespeare steps away from it. So by 1611, again that whole issue, well it hasn't gone cold because of course the English are very much in the Mediterranean but again Peter would tell you endless stories about particularly around slavery, the forms of conversion that are going on the English in the Mediterranean but sort of working with whichever side will help them Shakespeare occludes all that it's just this sudden fragment that it, it crops up. And again, the play famously says, one of the characters says, we've just come back from Carthage. And somebody says, this, this Tunis sir was Carthage. And he says, Carthage? Oh, right, so we're back in the sort of Roman world. But is it the same? No, it's a little bit further away. Tunis and Carthage are not quite the same. So they have this kind of completely archaic argument about geography. It's very, very odd. So it's just a glimpse which says that really, I think, again, it's that moment, the early 17th century moment, the Johnny-come-lately nature of English uh, commercial life is that it's looking both ways it's tentatively sort of stepping into the new world, it's got a foothold in the eastern Mediterranean but it knows really that it's sort of nowhere, I mean the East India Company is formed in 1600 and that begins to tell its own separate story so I think that already it's sort of being washed out of the drama by then, I think it's just this extraordinary moment of engagement in the 80s and 90s up to 1603 and then it ends and so you just get this weird is this sort of odd utopian sort of dreamlike world which just can't help, it's a very sort of political and conscious Frederick Jameson argument, it can't help but sort of just erupt at moments, but it's already very attenuated by then, I think. Don't even get me started on the Mediterranean, just the name, the centre of the world. Yeah, that tells you everything. 
And, you know, I think that that is, that is significant. And, in fact, that's not what we really understand by the Mediterranean, because when we think of and talk of the Mediterranean, it's let's go on holiday to Spain and France. We don't think of North Africa as being Mediterranean or Egypt or even, even, um, even in the Eastern Mediterranean in Palestine and so on and Israel. So, you know, we have, we have a world where we've created what we want to see and, you know, what the Romans would have told you. And I can tell you because I've looked at Roman tax censuses and coin distributions and all that sort of data. The most profitable provinces of Rome were all in North Africa. Uh, that part of the Mediterranean that we've disconnected from ourselves because it, we think it has a different history to the rest of it. So we've, we've planted this in the middle of the world. We think that somehow that gives us the ability to claim all the historical legacies that we like, but it's, um, it's a mythology. And just one thing about that, Andrew Hess, you know, a scholar in the 1780s, wrote these great books about precisely that period, and he says that was the great flashpoint. And you wrote a great book, which is called The Forgotten Frontier. Just really, you know, so people have been doing this work. It's back to your question, you know, where do you go with that? There is a, you know, there are people that you can see have been making these arguments, but it's been so discreet in certain ways. People like Susan Skeletor, you know, Andrew Hess, the material is there. Um, in many ways, I think what both of us are doing is, is, is a form of synthesis, but it has a certain affect as well in terms of the, the argument. There's a question there. Or something. So uh, we'll take a few more questions, but I need to pose my two very brief questions to the two speakers. They'll be somewhat mischievous, uh, so do forgive me in advance. Uh, for Dr. Frankenthal, uh, pushing back against this notion of Northwest Europe, Europe as a, as a dim, dark, dank swamp. Uh, I, can, I was uh, told this... I've been told off about that word already. Yeah. Uh, I, I can uh, see, uh, I've conceded. If you're, that's not the mischievous yeah. question. Uh, yeah. the, uh, I was told, uh, given this statistic by, by an economic historian, who uh, totted up the volume of all the goods that passed between Asia and Europe between 1500 and 1800. And he said it would struggle to fill one of the big uh, container ships that we see plying the waves left, right, and center, which says something about the, the ties or lack thereof between East, West, Europe and Asia. How does that... Well, I tell your... him to go and re... re so, I've there's, there's a single shipwreck off the coast of Indonesia that was carrying 85,000 pieces of ceramic to the Persian Gulf that sank in about the year 900. Okay, so, so 85,000, which is, which is equivalent of about two of those containers that you put on one super, super, super tanker. So that, those levels of exchange, it's not about connecting China and what does it ship to the United Kingdom or to Europe. Most exchanges along the Silk Roads are local. You know, all of us know that. Our, our most intensive relationships are those who are close to us mm. by marriage, mm. by relationships, mm. our next-door neighbours, mm. people we see in the street in Oxford like we do. Mm. You know, those, those are the relationships that are much more common than coming to the LSE one evening, seeing all of you, and then clearing off. So mm. most of that exchange is not trying to... It's a false... And economic historians can be very dangerous people <laughs> because, they, because they believe that they have data that backs up mm. their, their, their meta-argument. And so I, I, I'm sure he's brilliant or she's brilliant, uh, uh, but I'm highly sceptical mm. about trying to track things in that kind of way. And in mm. fact, what Jerry will tell you, the kind of work that he does, looking at o objects, at mm. cultural things that are mm. obviously hugely considered hugely valuable in mm. Dutch art and British art, the kinds of things that have pride of place obviously do have proper, proper value in terms of their cash value and a status. Yeah. Professor Brosson. Go on, get him. Um, <laughs> without qualifications, or you can add the qualifications, politics trumps religion. Therefore, this Islam-Christian thing, it's all tosh. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was part of the Mediterranean world or the European world, as was the, the, the uh, Iran and this Islam and Christendom thing, as far as you're concerned, it's, it's, it's a side issue. No? 
<laughs> no, no. But obviously, the, the two are going hand in hand. And the you know the fact is that again, one of the things that I want to talk about is the fact that there is an absolute awareness in this period in the late 16th century that the English start talking about the fact that they understand the sectarian divisions between Sunni and Shia in a way that they start to make sense of the sectarian division between Catholicism and Protestantism in this period. So, no, in no way does the book try and do that. I think what I'm trying to say is, again, it's what Peter was saying, it depends where you stand and it's different kind of, it's different communities who respond in a different way. So when you have Anglican divines sort of banging on, again, about how dreadful Islam is, that is, again, the story that we focused on. So you can look at that material from the early 20th century of scholars who will say, oh, all the drama of the period just says that these are sort of dreadful, you know, the sort of Edward Said Orientalist thesis writ large. And they, because that's what they're looking for. That's the story that they want to tell. Othello, oh, it's about a black guy, isn't it? So we're going to now talk about race. No, it's wrong, wrong, wrong. But Shakespeare gives us that at the end. He says, this is about politics, it's about commerce, it's about empire. And yes, of course, it's about religion because he takes by the Turk a circumcised, he takes by the throat a circumcised Turk. And at that point, of course, the thing I say in the book is, the, the, the fluidity of identity is so extraordinary because people say, yeah, but Shakespeare never has somebody who identifies as a Muslim on the stage. I says he does for one second because Othello says that he becomes a Turk and he stabs himself. So in that way, it's, it's a theological identification as much as it might be a political imperial division. So no, it's, about, it's not about one trumping the other. It's, a bit, it's again about where different people stand and what decisions they have to make. We know this about conversion, the stories that we have around conversion. The problem that historians have is, it's like Peter not believing the economic historians. How can you believe somebody when they talk about converting and then reverting? You know, I was circumcised, I'm John Ward, I'm living in Algeria. Why have you done that? And actually, would you reconvert back? I mean, Natalie Zeman Davis has written about this with Leo Africanus. We were talking about Al-Wazan. Again, a character we've always called Leo Africanus, who takes the name of a pope. Well, give him his real name. <laughs> Okay, and Natalie Zeman Davis does that and tries to understand the complexities of both that sort of, let's call it a secular identity, but also religious identity. No. So we, we can't, we, we make a, it's, it, it's a problem and we, we try not to unbraid them because they're inextricably linked. You can't separate them out. I've been put in my place. <laughs> so uh, let's take three questions. Uh, the gentleman in, in the black. Uh, and the lady on, on the corner on the side there, and then the gentleman tours. Uh, thank, thank you very much. Brilliant. I, uh, I will read these books. I'm not... I mean, but um, one thing I want to ask you, because this has cropped up, you didn't refer to Orientalism, where a lot of us, of course, are aware of um, Ed Said's famous book, Orientalism, where he um, relates the... Um, he called a prejudiced approach to Oriental cultures, given the... European dominance of much of the Muslim world, though in the 19th century I think German scholarship was the highest in the world when it comes to much Oriental Annex studies, and unlike France, England and Russia, Germany didn't have colonies in the Muslim world, but I'd just very much like if you could say something about that and uh, the relevance of Oriental studies. Uh, so, uh, the two it. other questions, just uh, very briefly. If you could, uh, the lady uh, uh, on, the, on the side. I was thinking about the Abbasid Empire and how they embraced knowledge and they translated stuff. 
And then I was thinking about ISIS, who are saying that they're sort of reviving the Khalifat, and they seem to have gone totally crazy. Can you talk about why this phenomenon emerged and why it's such a gap between the traditional Islamic empires that were basically good news? Okay. And there was one more. And then finally, back there. Um, from, a uh, from a linguistic perspective, how do you think the world will shift going forward, the center of power in terms of what people will speak and, and how languages will change based on how we have seen the shifts have, how the shifts have developed over a period of time from, say, Asia through into Europe and development of Indo-European languages and then going back um, into the development of English and how that's going to impact Asia going forward, and do you think there'll be more influence? Which side do you think the influence is going to come from? Can I just talk about Orientalism? Um, I mean, it seems to me that uh, it was a book that completely changed the way in which I thought about things when I first read it at university. And I interviewed Said just before he died, and it was really interesting because um, it seems to me it's, it's a hugely political issue in terms of whether you critique Said or, or what you do with Said. I suppose, in a way, the work that I've done says that model doesn't work. The model that he has of, a, of, a, of, of the West being always already uh, discursively superior to the East, to the Orient, um, I would say, no, that needs, uh, that needs revising. But Said himself was talking about this and saying he, kn he knew that. It was very important to make that political intervention. The book is really about the 18th and 19th century, I think, sort of literary, politically discursive world. And he acknowledged that, of course, the argument would shift. But ideologically, at that point in the late 70s and early 80s, it was really, really important to make it. I think he was a big enough scholar to say, and now we move on. That's probably what happened with, his, with, with, with what's going on with Peter's book, that now the argument goes out there, and then it's a back, back to the education or the kind of changing of history. Then people have a big old fight about it. But it changes the direction of flow. And Said did that. And I won't hear people like Robert Irwin endlessly attacking him because I know that they are basically right-wing apologists. So it's a really political argument, it seems to me, around what happens to Said. Um, so I support him, and I think that the intervention was very important, even though the history probably now needs revising. But thank God he did that first because we wouldn't be sitting here doing this. Good answer. Uh, okay, so yeah, Bassett, well, well, you know, I, personally, I, I, I don't think the level of educational development of a lot of the... Um, ISIS gang is particularly high. You know, they could spend a bit more time trying to reflect on what happens in the early Islamic tradition where you know, one of the first caliphs when he visits uh, Jerusalem goes and prays at the Holy Sepulchre. You know, the great mosaics on the church of, of the great mosque in Damascus all invoke Jesus, Jesus as the Son of God and, and the Virgin Mary. You know, there, there was, uh, in the first hundred years of, of the Islamic world, that level of tolerance stemmed from the fact that the Islamic world was very self-confident because it seemed self-evident that God was on their side. Because if you're able to conquer and so on, then, then you're being protected the same way that that's the conclusion the Dutch brought. And, you know, onward Christian soldiers, as I was taught to sing at, at school. You know, that's, that's what happens if you're doing well. Obviously, the divine has that in store for you. And I think that that, that compression of working out what these uh, individuals are trying to achieve and do, there's a, there's a, there's a flatlining of what they're relying on as, mm. as truth. And it's, of course, mm. deeply worrying. It just shows what lack of education can do. And, of course, it's highly damaging. As far as languages goes, well, you know, clearly we're in an age where a lot of language is going to be um, systematized through, through coding advances and the ability to translate instantaneously online. What, what I'll tell you and what, what any historian will tell you, Jerry and Gagan will tell you, is that understanding what somebody says isn't, isn't the problem. 
understanding what they mean mm. is. Mm. And you can have parallel translations. Mm. Google will translate, they'll get better and better and better. Mm. But those nuances mm. um, you know, are, are, the, are the bits that interest us as historians, actually. Mm. It's those bits when you say, I'd like, I'd like to come and have a cup of tea with you. And do they really mean that? What do they mean? And in England, they mean something very different. You know, and someone here <laughs> asks me to come to the house for dinner. That means they really, really like me. Mm. Whereas in Italy, you meet a guy who's a ticket inspector on the train. He says, you should come and have dinner. And you know, he really doesn't mean it. <laughs> so uh, we, 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 can, we can forget the fact that there are words that all of us know in our cultural bags. You know, when I say match of the day, it means something very specific to guys our generation about being allowed to stay up a little bit late, watching the football and so on. And, and you know, we need to be very careful about um, thinking that we can rely on co- computation to do it. So clearly English is going to become more dominant. Uh, that's true. But what, we've, what, we're, what I'm worried about in the case of Britain and the United States is that uh, we expect everyone to come and learn English, and they do it to a high standard, but we don't put the investment in to encourage them to learn other languages. So it's a bit like, it's a bit like why we lose in the World Cup every year. We've got lots of brilliant, the more brilliant scholars we have coming to the UK quite frankly, the better. The, the brightest minds, you know, please tell your friends to come and study the LSE and, uh, and so on and so forth. But if we don't export our cleverest ones to go and be exposed to life in uh, the Arabic-speaking world, in Russia, in the United States, in South America and so on, then we, 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 we cement in this blinkered view where um, other people come and say, well, look, you know, we've learned, we've, all of you will have had to learn about the Battle of Hastings, but most, most, of, most of the people brought up in Britain really can't tell you what, what are the most significant developments in, developments in China mm. between 500 and 1900. They might say gunpowder, like that somehow means something, but the invention of gunpowder is absolutely, truly, utterly meaningless until mm. the Europeans work out how to use it in a way that kills incredibly aggressively. Mm. Yeah. So we've just gone past 8 o'clock, so we need to bring this phase of the conversation to a gentle close, but there is yet other phases you can indulge in. Cafe 54, has, I believe, is going to remain open until extra late today. So if you wish to keep on discussing this matter, please feel free to do so. Uh, as I said very early on at the very beginning of the, of the, of the, of the seminar, of the, the, the event, uh, Professor Brosnan's book uh, is going to be published by Penguin at the end of March. Uh, Dr. Frankopan's book, however, is available for sale on a stall outside, and I believe you'll be sticking around to sign some Yeah, yeah, definitely, if you want me to, yeah. And that leaves me with the very pleasurable task of inviting you to join me and giving them a warm...